Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Thompson, and welcome back to the Chief Executive Podcast. My guest today is a chief executive who really set the tone for what we call radical mentoring, this idea that you can grow faster and be more at an accelerated pace. My guest is Candace Carpenter, co-founder of what was one of the biggest media companies to start the revolution during the 1990s, iVillage. As a leader in the dot-com industry, Candace developed a unique company culture for her organization that was key to her success in scaling growth. So you see, you can't really grow a company any faster than you can scale yourself. And by maintaining a style of rigorous mentoring for her employees, she accelerated their development at an extraordinary pace. She calls this method radical mentoring, and it allowed iVillage to keep pace with the constant reinvention that the industry demanded, and we've seen for generations since. Candace and I had an opportunity to sit down and talk about the details of her style of mentoring. Well, radical mentoring sort of grew up out of necessity in, the, in that when we were running iVillage and at a time when talent was becoming very scarce and we had a lot of young talent and a lot of very open positions in the senior ranks, and we thought, you know what, we could hire people from outside and we'd have a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Or we could try to figure out a way to grow these people who we love and respect but who are not even close to ready right today we could see how quickly could we grow them into these positions. And then they'd be people that we already have decided on as people, in essence, and who would grow up in the culture, and therefore the cultural fit we would know was great. So we took a couple of people initially, a woman named Mac and another woman named Hillary, both happened to be women, although later we put a lot of men through this. We asked them, would you like to go on a ride? <laughs> and they both said yes. And uh, the result, I'll tell you first, Hillary went from being my assistant to being one of the women who, who founded and ran the UK operation for iVillage five years later, four years later. Mac went from being an assistant web producer on one of the channels to being offered the COO job of our company. Now, she did declined it because she'd gotten married and was having children and actually wanted a break. But that's the kind of result we produced. So we found, to our surprise, that we could move people and they could move themselves exponentially faster than we had thought. But we found that what it takes, uh, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of courage on the part of the person to be willing to open themselves up tremendously to growth. And growth is really not, uh, we all know, growing is, is uh, <laughs> rewarding after it's done. Not so much fun while it's happening. The actual, technically what we did, since we were making this up, is we said, okay, we have this assumption that people would grow naturally if they got enough feedback. You know, if you knew to go a little bit more left or a little bit more right, you would do it. You know, usually we're walking around without enough information about how we could be more effective. And in the old companies that I grew up in, uh, I had a mentor, and I had a mentoring program where they talked to me once a year. So we thought, all right, let's change that. Let's make it every day, five times a day. And that's what we did. So we just gave them constant feedback. And the first thing that happened is that we're all a little afraid of feedback, but after about two days, they got over that totally because anything happening to you five times a day ceases to be much of an event. And they also realized that it didn't really hurt as much as they thought. I mean, a lot of it was positive. It was all, all very to the point, you know, and people got to the point where they, they really got that. They wanted as much feedback as we had time to give them. The second part of it was that at some point in growing, almost everybody comes up against something big in themselves, some part of their character that's not a skill issue. 
So in each of these cases, every single person we mentored in that way came up against something in themselves, whether it was their ego, whether it was some sense of insecurity, didn't, some fear of being left out that was brought into the workplace. And what we found is that by tackling that head-on with somebody, we were able to get them through it pretty easily. I mean, we're not licensed shrinks or anything, but we just found that by, by describing in a very simple way that we saw this as the one thing left in their path between what, where they were and what they wanted, and, and gently working with them on it, that they were able to get through it really pretty easily. And so we had just success story after success story from doing this. And, you know, we all had learned some ways of giving feedback, like the management one-on-one, like you always say something nice, and then you nail the person, all that stuff. We sort of say, look, you know what? It's just pretend it's your kid sister, your kid brother. It's someone you care about. You think they could benefit by knowing this. It's a matter of... Um, Getting, you have to pair yourself with someone you care about. That's essential. I mean, the mentor has to care about the person. Because I think there's just a lot of, there's a lot of evidence from the therapeutic tradition that change happens in those conditions. So that's probably the only thing that's essential. If you, if you have a young kid who you personally can't stand, you should pass. You know, you shouldn't try to be the person helping them. It's interesting that teacher often arrives when the student is ready. Yeah, absolutely. How did the, how did the teacher feel about this? What did the mentor learn from the Well, everybody, experience? you know, this is pretty pretty exciting for everybody. I mean, most people, because they didn't have the experience that I got to have at our Ben and Knowles, were, were even more shocked than I was. I mean, I saw kids that were a mess come to our Ben or Knowles and leave a different person, you know, and their parents were calling me going, what did you do? I don't get it. So I had seen that, and I, but a lot of, some of my colleagues who hadn't were, were, were truly astonished. I think one of the changes in mentoring now is that my mentor at American Express, the assumption was that he was mentoring me to stay at American Express. That was the entire deal, and to follow, in essence, in his footsteps. I think when we mentor people today, we have to accept that we're mentoring them for a portion of their journey, and that it's not likely that you know their whole journey will be with the company that I'm at, and it's not likely my whole journey will be at that company. Could you talk more about yeah. your mentors? You talked about American Express yeah. and, and also Outward Bound and that experience that you had. Yeah, I mean, I had two really important mentors. One was at Knowles, actually, at National Outdoor Leadership School, where I became an instructor against all odds. I was not the most likely mountaineering instructor. Every time I got on a rock wall, I started crying, which was not really, the, not quite the, the look they were, they were going after. But... I sailed through all the other tests, and so they gave me a shot, like the most probationary shot to be this, and um, I was in love with it, so I was determined. But I had an instructor, uh, course leader, who really changed, you know, changed me in the way mentors do, and he was a radical mentor before the term was coined. I went through a river in front of a bunch of students. I went across a, a raging river first to check it out. And I fell. There was uh, there was a rock, and it turns out the river was a lot deeper than we thought. And I went down, and I hadn't left my my uh, backpack unbuckled. And our backpacks, the instructors were usually carrying about a hundred pounds. So I mean, I was I was gone. And he fortunately was able to get in and get me out and save my life. But he didn't quite stop at that. He got everyone assembled on the shore and said, you know, Candace just did an incredibly stupid thing, and went on to make a great object lesson of me. And I was very humiliated by it, but you know what? I think in the end that it was a very good thing because he he got my full attention. It's hard to explain. I thought, okay, I'm not I'm with a guy who's gonna expect a lot of me and gonna hold me to a standard. And and it really was very good for me. The second thing he did 
was I was leading a rock spur up a big mountain uh, called Gannett Peak, and it was a I was really so scared of rock climbing, and I hesitated in front of the rock spur with all these students behind me, and from the back he shouts. Either lead, follow, or get out of the way. <laughs> I wanted to go right through the ground. But again, I mean, I thought his principle was sound. And what I did that night, he said, you don't have to be a climber. Just decide. If you're not a climber, don't lead climbs. This is his only point. About two weeks later, I bought a rope. I drove to Yosemite. And I, I ended up the summer climbing Half Dome. And I became a climber. I actually became one of the best women climbers in the country. But it's because of him clarifying for me what my choices were. So he was a great mentor. Then I had my, the, the mentor at American Express was spectacular. His name was Steve Goldstein. I went to American Express out of the mountains, effectively. I went to business school. But I would go down to the cafeteria and eat lunch. And then I was still wiping my hands on my suit before I remembered that we were indoors now and there were napkins. So I was like a wild child imported you know, into the hallowed halls of American Express. And I had good instincts, but I needed a lot of house training. And he was very patient. He gave me um, this big project to make a strategic presentation to what turned out to be the top 20 people of American Express. And I didn't like the assignment, so I decided I wasn't going to do that well at it. But I'll tell you, the morning when all those people started filing in, I really regretted this tactic bitterly. And I did a horrible job. And he called me in and he said, well, the good news is you worked very hard on this. The bad news is it definitely did not show. <laughs> and um, what he, he said, I'm going to give you another chance, which is the last thing I wanted, by the way. He had me give the whole thing to another 20 people on American Express two weeks later, and I did an unbelievably spectacular job. And that's a great mentor to me. I mean, he just uh, he didn't give up on me, but he didn't particularly give me a lot of slack either. He held me to the highest in myself. And I will say to this day that making strategic presentations is one of my strongest suits. So I think this is what mentors can do for us. They can take something that is a weakness in us and actually turn it around to be you know, a lifelong strength. It's very powerful. I think that having for kids doing physically scary things is almost essential in this century. It is it's really important because so much of what they face as leaders is going to be uncertainty and if they have any sense at all, terror. And learning that, you know, to have conquered things like that, I think visceral things like that, not, not intellectual problems, but visceral fear, I think is a very important component of leadership. Because a lot of what is leadership is fear, you know, being afraid. If you're awake, you know, and you're not medicated, you're afraid. You know, there's a lot to be afraid of when you're leading something. And I think learning to uh, take that fear in stride and therefore be able to help other people take it in stride is, is really a very important part of leadership. There's... There was something that went on at Knowles. There was a certain climbing teacher whose students performed differently than anyone else's. And I was so fascinated by this. And I finally realized what it was, is that he was creating a kind of a safety net under them, a mental safety net. He made them feel so safe that they would try things that no one else would have gotten them to try. And I think a lot of being a leader is you create that safety net and people somehow, all the things out there that are scary, you know, uncertainty in the stock market and all the things that really can paralyze an organization, suddenly I think a leader can put a wrap around that and have people feel safe uh, and be able to function at a high level in the face of a lot of uncertainty. The real truth is that because I think being a lead leadership and the ability to create things is a gift. And if you have it, you really have to use it. I think you just lead if you must. You know, if that's your calling in essence, you lead. If you can avoid it, I would strongly recommend avoiding it. If you can in any way talk yourself out of this, 
talk yourself out of it. And some small number of people won't be able to talk themselves out of it. And you're the ones who should really do it. So I do feel that way about leadership. I think leadership is a very hard, selfless gig. And that, you know, if you can just go any other way, do it. If there's an easier, softer way that you can come up with, you should take it. There are a lot of skills of leadership. But at the end of the day, leadership is a commitment to put yourself completely on the line on behalf of whatever it is you're leading. I mean, it's not, to me, a real ego aggrandizing concept. It's, to me, a concept in which you agree to suffer a lot of things on behalf of what it is you're leading. Take hits, take arrows, take slings, sleepless nights. And, and I think when I talk to kids about it, that's the biggest thing I, I think maybe they're not getting from people. They're getting the idea that the leader, oh, the leader's on television, the leader has this great office, and the leader... And because I learned about leadership in the mountains, what I learned is, oh, great. So when everyone's sick, the leader digs a latrine. And the leader is the last one to get out of the rain. And the leader is the one who goes hungry when you run out of food. And that's really, to me, the notion of leadership. That it's not like you get first dib on all the goodies. Now, you get heavily rewarded, but anyone who's ever been a leader would know why. You know, because you're giving a tremendous amount of yourself. What's the process that you live through, or what's the first thing you do when you're starting to lead a new Mm -hmm. entrepreneurial project or lead an organization, what are the steps that you take? Well, for me, I can't really organize the people or even my own commitment level until I can get a picture of what it is we're doing that's extremely clear and crystalline. And there are some people who start businesses or ventures by very opportunistically, like let's see what sells or let's see what. I, I cannot do that because if you take the time to get this picture so fleshed out and so perfect to save yourself years you know of you you'll be so efficient and so clear in your operation the idea will never get diffused by opportunity so that's the first thing i care about and then i think the second thing is you have to get a team together that is quite diverse from each other which i have learned over time you know everybody wants a team more or less it's just like them because it's easier to function Every, you know, I, I remember that front page of the Wall Street Journal with Jack Welch's direct reports, and they all look like twins. I thought, that doesn't look so hard. I mean, they're all the same person in a, in a way, you know. But I think, and John Doerr said this in an, in an interview I read, and I, I think he's so right that you need such a diverse team in the beginning of something that it's almost like you wouldn't all naturally sit down and have dinner together. That's about when you have it right, because you need uh, different kinds of peripheral vision, different kinds of people need to be worrying, and their brains need to be set up to worry about different kinds of things. So you need a kind of worry wart, very anal type, like my CFO was a worry wart. You know, I never worried would a meteor hit our company, no, because he was lying awake every night worrying about it, <laughs> so I could have a good night's sleep. Um, but you need someone like that, and then you need the eternal optimist, and you need the highly intuitive person, you need the very analytical person. But that's it. I think you really need all those skills. And then, then when you have that, I think you need to wrap them in the glue of this mission that, that everybody has bought into very strongly. And then the last thing I think that gets something going is to have a very clear sense of milestones, which I would describe as being different than goals, and that goals to me are achievable, incremental. They look like, okay, great, we can grow 10% a year. But the milestones to me are to say, okay, if we really want to be in this game, we have to get, you know, five paid clients in six months. We have to raise X amount of money. We have to, it's things that really, there's no particular reason why you would get them done, but you have no choice. So I think you have to agree, what are the 
five or six things that we have to do here to stay on the playing field and, and have a chance to go to the next level with it. And once people have identified those, I think they're very energized. Having that really makes a difference because, I mean, every research study ever done shows that people think it's great to have money, but meaning, meaning is actually, in the end, more important to them. And I see that in secretaries. I see it in junior people out of business school. I, I had a woman call me in tears who just graduated from Harvard Law School, got into the best law firm in New York, called me sobbing, like, you know, is this all there is? <laughs> Help! And quit to go take a job working for Charlie Rose at $30,000 a year. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.